Voices are exotic dancers enter one by one. Make love to all of your orifices in your seduction. Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. Today I have special guest Jesse on. He is a friend of mine from another podcast that I used to be a part of. And we discuss uh, what I'm calling moral landscaping. It's sort of the nuts and bolts, blue collar attempt to really bring the rubber to the road, as it were, in our moral discussion and how to build a moral system that's based on reality, that's based on evidence, that's based based on a subjective element that we must, I believe, take into account if we're going to be talking about the pain and suffering or the well-being of human beings. So Jesse did a great job here. You know, he he brought a lot to the table and uh, this was his very first uh, exposure to this. So it was very nice to talk with him. Uh, I have another episode where I try to do the same thing with Christopher Shelton and we get a slightly different outcome. So this, uh, it's kind of interesting the way different people uh, either recognize or fail to recognize or, or object or whatever to what I'm proposing in this episode. But let's listen in. And uh, in the final thoughts, I will bring it all home. So I'm here with Jesse Gilbertson. This is Paul Schilling, your host. Hello, and, Paul. Hi, Jesse. And today we are going to conduct what I'm calling some moral landscaping. I used to be an actual landscaper, but I don't know very much about moral landscaping. Yeah, well, I'm just calling it that. It's going to be sort of a play on words off of Sam Harris's book, The Moral Landscape. Um, and Which the, I have not read. Okay. And the idea is to take some of the points that he makes in that book about uh, morality having objective components to it or being, he says it's objective, and meld that together with what a lot of people say is subjective, that there are subjective elements or that morality is subjective. Because mm-hmm. I think that there are valid points on both. Uh, however, the moral landscaping that we're going to do here today, I'm just trying to do sort of a mind walk. I want to lay out the foundation of morality. I want to lay out something that people can actually wrestle with, some kind of playing field that now they can start to weigh their decisions on and determine what is and isn't moral. Instead of just making it an idea of it's it is objective or it is subjective or whatever and leaving it very loose and not nailing anything down, I actually want to nail down some of the foundational elements of what morality is and what it is that we're talking about. All right. And Jeff has agreed very generously to donate his time and his brain power to hear what I have to say, to push back on anything that doesn't sound right to him, or to you know provide some kind of feedback so that we stay on track for one, for two, so that what I say makes sense, and then hopefully to help hone these ideas and sort of narrow them down into even more understandable concepts and more applicable. So thank you. Well, I'll do my best. I'm ready. I'm here to serve. So initially, I want to say, okay, so... Actually, well, can I ask you a question first? Yeah, please, go ahead. How do you define morals? How do I define morals? Yeah, is there a simple definition that you use? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, yeah, that was actually the beginning of what I was about to say. <laughs> okay. So. I think in in a I think that if you read the moral landscape, what Sam Harris got right was that we basically measure morals and values on a continuum. So on one side, we're talking about the flourishing, happiness, and satisfaction of moral creatures. I'm gonna just I'm just gonna narrow it down to human beings because I think to, in order to be moral, we have to talk about human well being or human suffering, and the. Mi- 
minimum component is human beings. We could add dolphins and chimpanzees and bonobos at a later date, but the minimum common denominator, the lowest common denominator, if we're talking about morality, would be human beings and human morality, as we are humans, and so we're going to talk about our own species. Okay. But just to finish this thought before you, because I want you to jump in, but so we're talking about a continuum. So the definition of morals are ideas and modes of thinking and concepts that relate to the continuum where human beings on the one side have uh, increased happiness, increased well-being, increased flourishing, increased satisfaction. And on the other end, more misery, more pain, more suffering, and more dissatisfaction with life. So when we're talking about morals, and if we're talking about a moral situation, we're talking about decisions, and we're talking about systems like societal systems, moral systems, economic systems, you know, family systems, uh, how to to raise children, for instance, would be a moral question, because it relates to how human beings uh, fall on that continuum. Okay, that sounds that all sounds pretty good to me. That sounds okay. Sure. Okay. Yeah, it's not a hard and fast definition. Like, you know, I don't know. Well, it it's it's it has some wiggle room so i guess i haven't again i haven't read sam harris's book i have i have sort of i definitely have experience with other systems moral systems that are out there but i definitely i definitely agree with the concept that it's about humans humans you know in trying to improve people's situation Mm -hmm. that would be moral reducing human situation or hurting people in some way would be immoral sure and as far as your reference to animals i don't know if animals can exert be moral or immoral but Humans can certainly be immoral towards animals uh, sure. or, or moral towards them. I think those are all you know valid points and all up for discussion about where we want to fall on this moral landscape. So if you have a, a continuum and you have a valid reason to, let's say, include chimpanzees in, in that continuum, right? Now we are all of a sudden addressing our actions as they relate to chimpanzees instead of just how they relate to ourselves and other human beings. Right. So wanting to include other animals I think is sort of like moral icing on the cake, but right. the the basic foundation is we're talking about human beings. Sure, we're keeping that discussion narrow on the subject for today. Uh, yeah, and and just I think in general, I think if you're talking about morality in general, and you're talking, I mean, you're only going to be talking to a human being about this. This is the only we're the only species that we know of that has these kinds of conversations. We're the only species that we know of that have these moral conundrums. I think we are talking about a human experiment. We're not talking about a universe of just rocks. There is no morality in that universe. And we're not talking about including every single species, at least not at the base level. At the very base level, we're talking about how to increase our happiness and well-being and those of others that we love. And even more still, if we want to be even more moral, those of those that uh, increasing the well-beings of those we don't even know, those we don't love. So just humanity as a whole. So that's one of the basic foundations. The idea is that there is a continuum and that you can move along that continuum based on your decisions, based on the things that you do out in the world, things that you say to different people, and the ways that you behave. So how does that sound for an initial sort of starting point as a foundational element of morality? I think it sounds just fine. It's clear that you've given us some thought. Sure. You've put some effort into trying to come up with something for yourself, because it sounds like you haven't just received a moral code from some authority and just accepted it and abided by it. You put thought into it. Um, Does that sound right? I mean, were you raised with like a certain moral code that your parents or whoever tried to enforce on you? Yeah, I mean, there was, I think, I think to some degree, everybody is. I mean, I was raised as a Christian and 
there was certainly a certain there was certainly a moral position that they took based on Christianity. But then there's also humanity and humanism sprinkled in because we're humans, and we you know we recognize empathy in other people. We recognize, or I'm sorry, empathy for other people, and you know we recognize doing bad things to people is hurtful. So I mean you know I w- I was raised with certain certain elements of of Christianity, like you shouldn't have sex until you're married, like ridiculous moral pronouncements like that. You shouldn't engage in gambling or yeah, watch that, R-rated movies. There are vices and so on that yeah. you can engage in, like masturbation or whatever, and those are inherently bad, even though there was no reason for it. But then there was also plenty of humanism in there where it was like, well, of course you don't want to beat up your neighbor because he's a pretty good kid. You know, Why would you hurt somebody if you don't have to? That kind of stuff. Okay. What were you going to say, though? I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, uh, I myself was raised in, well, a little bit in Christianity for the first few years, years of my life. Morality was just, you know, my parents said it was bad. Don't do it. And then when I was about 10, I lived with my grandparents for a year. It was the first time I'd ever been really exposed to Christianity. And they were diehard, like really devout Christians. And there were lots and lots of rules, you know, like you couldn't do anything fun on Sunday. Sunday was a day of rest, which meant a day of boredom. Um, that was one that I was just like, what kind of sense does that make? But it was a moral. It was a rule. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there were lots of good ones like, you know, get your chores done. If your chores are done, then then we have a nice, the house is nice. And, you know, like the weeds don't grow. Like if one, one of my chores was like mowing. And if the weeds get too long, then snakes are going to start coming in the yard. So there's an actual direct bad outcome from not doing this thing that was considered to be moral. Mm-hmm. So I definitely, it was around that time of life, around age 10, where I started to to see it not just as like my parents were being authoritative, but morals could could be arbitrary and dumb, or they could be positive and give you a good benefit in life. Sure. Um, later on, I I was in Scientology for quite a few years, and that's the first time that I was ever really exposed and had to really kind of try to understand a moral code. There are, as I see it, um, and I'm curious to hear your feedback on it. Uh, there are objective aspects to what we consider moral or immoral. And the basis of most of these object, the objectivity or the objective element of morality is that there are things that we can do outside of our head, right? So they are objective by nature. They're not subjective. They're not just in our minds that can demonstrably hurt other people and make things worse off for society as a whole. And I think that's sort of irrefutable, right? Like you could go out into society and you could set off a bomb, for instance, and there's no subjective way to look at it. There's no reason to take into account anything subjective there. You've objectively destroyed, let's say, a Starbucks, right? And now killed, let's say, 12 people, right? Sure. So objectively, you've committed a moral wrong. And it's those objective facts that inform the morality or immorality of our actions. So the reason why we call a bomber, right? Somebody who bombs a Starbucks or whatever an immoral person is because we can measure, we have a a very good understanding of the human body, its physiology, its biology, its evolution, and so on. And so we can say, blowing people up is bad for those people. It's not something we can survive. It's not like running into a Starbucks and giving everybody a hug, right? There's a huge difference and we understand what's good and what's bad for the human body. So we can say because a bomber goes in and blows up a bunch of people that that's an immoral act and we don't have to have any subjective element to that. 
Okay. I'd, I'd, I'd agree with you there. Okay. Kill a bunch of people. Those people's lives are going to end. They can't contribute to society anymore. Their family is going to suffer. It's going to ripple out and cause a lot of different destructive consequences, you know, from that one act. You know, right. setting off a bomb only takes an instant, but the damage is going to go on for months, years, or however long. Yeah. And not even, and, and not to mention the death of the 12 individuals. So we have objective, falsifiable, verifiable, you know, um, quantifiable, qualifiable, excuse me, qualifiable damage to human bodies that anybody, any person can walk into. And this is why it's objective. Any person can walk in and assess, right? This person lost this limb. They died because of this loss of blood. They died because of blunt force trauma to their head or whatever. You could take all that information in. And these are objective facts in the world that can be verified by other people. So an understanding of the limitations of the human body, for instance, and what actually causes suffering is an objective, completely scientific methodology that we use to inform whether or not what we just did was moral or immoral. So just to lay that out there. So there's an idea behind how our morality can be and is, I think, objective in nature. But there's another foundational element to morality, and that is the subjective nature of it. And I think that a lot of people want subjective morality to be a very... They, they, they try to characterize it in a specific way. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back against that a little bit because I feel like they lose the subjects in their explanation. So I'll, I'll get to... a an, I think a, a, an example is, is a good one. Okay. A good place to start. So a lot of the times when I hear people say that morality is completely subjective, they say something like... Well, if if you're a serial killer, so let's say you're Ted Bundy, right? You don't think killing people is wrong. Therefore, morality is subjective, right? You don't have that moral compass or you don't have that specific moral belief or understanding or whatever. And so you think killing people is fine. And that's why you're a serial killer, probably. And so therefore, morality is subjective. The other thing I hear often is people will say, well, take the example of, you know, like an ancient society. And because societies, a lot of people will say this, morality is subjective because it's about a social agreement, right? So if society says that, let's say, slavery is okay, or or pederasty in the, in the case of ancient Greece, or whatever, if society says it's okay, then it's moral for that time and place. And I would push back on that and say that that is not an example of subjective morality. Okay, what is that then? That is an example of, in the case of the serial killer, an immoral person, and we can say that they're immoral without any qualm, and an immoral society, and we can say that they're immoral without any qualm. The example of subjective morality that I would like to, to point us at, instead of saying a society determines what it is or an individual determines what it is, is what about the victim? So now you've got a society, let's take ancient Greece, where children are being, you know, are, are having sex with adult men, right? Adult, or adult men are, are practicing sexual relations with young boys. Mm -hmm. That was part of their society. They considered that moral. Uh, but what about the young boys? I don't think society imposes a morality onto a group of people. 
I think the people within that society, if asked, and they should be asked, in order for it to be a, a an uh, excuse me a moral society, and I don't mean amoral, I mean a moral society. In order for society to be moral, we have to take into account, in the case of ancient Greece, the voices and the wants and needs and the desires and the trauma and the testimony of the children that mm-hmm. are being put at, that are in that system that are that the adult men are having sex with. Do they want this to happen to them? Do they report any problems with it? Do they view it as rape? Is this something that they enjoy, or is it something that they hold their hand up and say, "No, no, no I'm, I'm not, I'm not cool with this." That uh, is a demonstration of subjective morality. Okay, is the subject determines what's moral or immoral as it's happening to them. So if you do something to somebody and they say, "Hey, I'm I'm cool with that. That was cool," and I'll give an example later, then you have not committed an immoral act. But if you do something to somebody and they say that caused me harm, that caused me hurt, that caused me pain, that caused me suffering, then you have committed a moral act, an immoral act. Excuse me. Okay. What were you going to say, though? Sorry. It's fine. No, go ahead. It's fine. Pass. Okay. So let's take an example because it might help uh, illustrate the idea. What I'm trying to do essentially is flip the script. People say this is moral by fiat, where they're saying an ancient society says it was, so it was for them. They're not taking into account the actual subjects of the action. So the people that are actually being acted upon. They say slavery was fine for the United States back in the day when people thought it was okay, but they're not saying, what did the slaves think? What did the slaves want to have happen to them? In lies the moral morality or immorality of that particular society. And that's why I want to flip the script. Okay, well, I would say as far as the slavery in the United States things go, thing goes, we know that there were objections even when the Constitution was written. You can look at the, uh, the three-fifths compromise where slaves in slaveholding states were only counted as three-fifths of a person. That was a compromise because there were people who said, no way should we count slaves you know, in the census for apportionment purposes. And that, that, I don't think that was just politics. I think there were people at the time who said slavery is immoral, full stop. And so as far as a, a society that's immoral, I think you make a good point, Paul. The, when, when damage is being done by one group of people to another or by an individual to another, that's an immoral thing. And, and you can extend it further. <laughs> Obviously, people were conquered and subjected in Africa, which would have caused great and terrible destruction to the societies that were already there. And they were attacking each other. Unfortunately, most of those societies were, were, didn't have writing. And so we don't have records of what was going on in, because most of the slaves were taken from the west coast of Africa. We don't know what was going on in that area or deeper in inside those countries, but it, I'm sure it was horrible. It would have been warfare, conquering, uh, capturing people, bringing them to America, forcing them into chattel slavery where they're possessed by another person. Their children are also slaves. You know, it's, you know, it was a horrible system. Um, so, uh, you know, to, to the people who were benefiting, they could have seen it as moral, but it would have been just a small sliver of the people in the society who were benefiting from all that misery and death and destruction. Well, right. And the, the point I'm trying to make is that looking back at an ancient society or looking back at our society in its antiquity and saying that that was moral for them at that time, and then saying, because morality is subjective, then 
you know, a group of people who determine that these rules are the rules we should live by. They create morality. I think that's hogwash. Ask the people that are being subjugated. Ask the people that are being forced to, you know, to have sex or ask the people that are being forced to be slaves or ask, ask the lowest common denominator, ask the subjects. If you want to get to the bottom of a subjective morality, and if you want to have a subjective morality or subjective component to morality, don't lose sight of the subject. That's what I would say. And I think most people, when I talk to them about subjective morality, because I would usually take the position that objective morality is sort of the dominant aspect of morality. But it, it wasn't until I had multiple conversations with people that I realized that it's subjective in this way. So this will help demonstrate it, I think. And that there's definitely a subjective element to it. But just to be clear, if, if you think that a person determines their own morality or a society determines a morality and therefore this and that ancient society, it was moral for them at that time. I don't know if you've heard that argument, but I've heard that probably a thousand times. Sure. That's bullshit. You it's, are either going to be a moral society based on the lowest common denominator, meaning the subjects in question. So if, if you're, t you know, they say, well, slavery was fine for this and this society. They're not taking into account the slaves. Well, pederasty was fine for this and this society. Well, they're not taking into account the testimony and the wanting and the, and the desires of those children that are being sexually, uh, uh, you know, whatever, taken advantage of or whatever. Or in the case of Greece, they would say sexually educated. Right. But that is not a moral society because it's not taking into account the subjects of whatever the, the action is, whether it's slavery or whether it's pederasty. But you were going to say something and then I can get into my uh, example. No, I wasn't. I finished my point. A great example of this, and this came up in a previous podcast, was let's say you lined up 10 people and then you cracked a whip across their backs one at a time. Nine out of 10 people may say, ah, no, 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 not my cup of tea at all. That hurt. Ouch. Please don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. One out of those 10 people may have been like, hey, yeah, that was pretty hot. I like my, that. Let's yeah. get some freak on. Yeah. Let's do this. Yeah. So you're talking about consent there or in the well, I'm talking about the subjective element of morality in nine out of 10 of those whippings. You have done an immoral thing in one out of 10 because the subject said, well, I was I was cool with that. That was that was hot. You have not committed an immoral act. Not according to that person, not according to that subject. Okay. They were fine with it. Yeah. So it comes down to a lot of times and in lies the subjectivity of morality. It comes down to the wants and desires of the subject, of the person being acted upon. And that is what I want to submit as another foundational element, the subjective foundational element of morality. And I just wanted to, do you have any feedback on that or does that make sense? That all seems very logically consistent. I can see where you started. And how you reached your end, and I don't have any objections to it. In your your the, in the book, the moral landscape that you referred to at the beginning, mm, yeah. Does he go into this subject of a no. does a the subject? No, he talks about objective morality as being our basis for morality. Okay, so he he's focusing solely on the objective element of morality of of suffering versus increasing right life. life. Yeah, right. But but the idea here is someone's account of suffering is a subjective account. So you take the example of cracking a whip over 10 people's backs. One of those 10 people was totally fine with that. And so you have not committed an immoral act, but the same exact act could be okay for one person and not for nine. And in lies the subjective element of morality. I think the overall act, if you were going to take an objective look at morality, whipping somebody with a bull 
whip would be objectively wrong because we can show that it causes pain. It opens up the skin. There's loss of blood. It causes suffering. There's trauma. There'd be post-trauma and so on. But those objective facts are still in some way subject to the actual people being whipped. Do they want this to happen? And so the act of whipping somebody, let's say take the one of 10, right? The one person that was like, hey, that was hot, right? You would have to ask that person then, at what point do you want this activity to stop? What's your safe word, right? Armadillo, I'm done. Tap out, right? I need to go recover because we recognize there are physiological limitations on the human body. And at a certain point, let's say whip lashing number 86, you're going to die. You're going to pass out and die and bleed to death. And you've already said, I don't want that to happen. I just like being cracked a few times because it turns me on, right? So maybe after six, you're like, armadillo, right? But in lies, we have objective facts about this action. And we know that to take you to the 87th lashing would be immoral. Even based on your own, you say, I like it, but I don't want to die. I, you know, I don't want to be whipped to death. I just like to get a little freak on, right? Okay. And then you have your safe word. So you're not committing an immoral act, even though it's the exact same action that nine out of 10 people said they are not cool with. And that was definitely immoral. And you need to go to jail or whatever, right? You need to be either stop doing it or whatever. Determ- we have to determine what the parameters of the, of the act was. But anyway, all right, that's well, the idea. Then these two things are one in the same in, in a lot of ways. They play, they interplay off of each other to create a cohesive moral action or an immoral action. All right. Fair enough. What if, okay, let's say, Paul, you and I are, we're buddies, we're buddies, and we're going to enter into some kind of an agreement. Okay. Let's say that I'm I'm really suicidal, and I have this crazy fantasy, I've been thinking about it for years, hmm. I want someone to cut me up, cook me, and eat me. All right. And, I wa- and you, you've been, just by, by coincidence, you've been fantasizing about chopping somebody up, cooking them, and eating them, mm-hmm. piece by piece, until they're dead, until you've cut off enough pieces of the body that they can no longer sustain life, and they die. Sure. Uh, we're both in agreement, totally in accord, like, let's do this. Where, where does that fall on your objective? Because objectively, you know, my mom's going to be like, where did my son go? Uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to have a job and contribute to society. I'm not going to be able to do my volunteer work at the hub anymore. Mm-hmm. But subjectively, it's, it's my dream. So how does that work out? Well, you tell me based on this now continuum that I've laid out and the objective and subjective elements of what you're saying is me, I guess, killing you and you wanting to die. Is that an immoral transaction? We understand that the objective facts are that you'll be dead, which we consider as human beings sort of generally speaking, a moral wrong. It's an immoral thing to kill somebody, generally speaking. Yeah, yeah. There are, there are... Well, somebody's terminally ill. Caveats or, yeah. to that, right? There's or, death or, with dignity, right? There's, I'm I'm sick of being alive because I'm in constant pain and suffering, so we put somebody down as a mercy. There's also self-defense. Self-defense. You're totally, and within your right, I think, to kill somebody that's trying to kill you or somebody else who's innocent, right? If you've got, if somebody's trying to kill a child or whatever, and you they can't defend themselves and you defend them... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're within yeah. your moral right. But you're a, you know, a lucid adult who wants to be killed. And I am a lucid adult who wants to kill you or wants to kill, right? Yeah, yeah. Where is the immoral act?
act then? Where is the pain and suffering to the person? Because in lies the subjective element of morality. It is true, objectively, you will not be able to contribute to society. And there may be some pain involved in what your family wants. But couldn't we mitigate that objective pain to your family by explaining to them, this is what we plan on doing, like I'm ready to die and this is how I want to die and here's the guy that's going to do it and so on. And so bringing all of them into the fold and well, handling those potential objections or whatever. I could see a few problems with that. This to me is the death with dignity argument right here. So the only, the only, the only issue that we're really addressing of mor- moral right or wrong is are you in a position where temporarily you want to die because you're depressed or do you actually fully want to die? As in, doesn't matter what your mind state is, you're ready to die, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the question, I think. Is that, does that help yeah, elaborate? I, so I guess let's so. ask this. So in this state, according to your hypothetical, are you ready to die or are you just in a bad place? place mentally. And, you know, on Tuesday, you may not want to, but today's Thursday. And so you're like, yep, I'm ready to go. It's too subjective. You can't, well, how, how can you possibly? You. It's your hypothetical. No. So are you the ready to die or is this a hypothetical? Or is this well, it would a, be a ready to die. Like is this I've, been, a I've been thinking about this for depressed years. Depressed state that you've found yourself in and normally, or maybe not even normally, but okay, 30% hypo- of hypothetically. the time you don't want to die. And then 70% of the time you do or whatever. No, uh, let's say uh, I'm happy about it. I want to die, not because I'm depressed. But because it's my dream. Okay, well then, where's the immoral issue? Especially if this is, I would say that in order to ensure that this is morally acceptable, that you would include your loved ones and family and the people that maybe don't want you to die in on this whole process. I would say that would be a a step number one in ensuring that this is a morally correct act. That sounds fine. That would be a tough conversation to have. (laughs) Sure, but that way we that way we talk to the objective side of this and we try to mitigate that objective that objective result in the world, right? That ripple effect that you were talking about. All right. But as a subject, as a person, you're fine with dying. So the subjective element of it is completely moral. The only problem we have is the objective side of it. Now, how is society? How is your family? How are things outside of your subjective mind? How are they going to respond? And how do we mitigate their response, whether it be good or bad? Right. There may be some ex-girlfriends that don't like you that are like, fucking finally. (laughs) Finally, yeah. God, I was... He'd been talking about it for years and just been waiting for to get it over with. And then there may be some folks in your life, like like you mentioned your mom or whatever, who would say, absolutely not. This is not okay. You know, right. there would be conversations to be had there potentially if you were going to poten- try and mitigate that objective immoral response. I gotcha. That would, that could classify that act as immoral. So taking us out of, you know, sort of the Q&A or the what about this or what about that and getting back to some foundational elements of morality. There's one other thing that I think we have to touch on as a foundational element. And this this to me isn't uh, foundational in the sense that it's part of like, let's say the four pillars or in the, in the case of this argument, it's three, right? It's that there is a moral landscape, that there is a moral continuum and that things that can happen just to, you know, reiterate what we've been talking about to either push you towards the good side or the positive side, the positive benefit side, or the bad side. So that has to be understood. That there's an objective element to morality being the scientific facts we know about physical limitations, about what causes psychological damage, right? And then there's the subjective element of morality, and that is these subjects themselves, right? Whether or not they want things to happen to them, whether or not the actions being taken are immoral in their view, right? So built upon that, I think, you can lay out sort of another element 
element and it's foundational in the sense that I think it has to be taken into account is what we consider basic human rights. So the UN has a list of human rights, but for instance, we agree that we have a right to life. And I think that we have good arguments to support those rights. I think they're sound and valid. I don't think you can argue against a right to life without forfeiting your own. And then we have other certain ones that are a little bit more tertiary, but certainly elemental to our understanding of how to create a society that's beneficial for everybody is like the right to free speech, um, the right to privacy, to be left alone. And then to me, the one that's, I think, most paramount and the one that most involves its or is most intertwined in moral decisions is the right to bodily autonomy, the right to do to your body what you wish or to have done to your body what you wish. So the right for you to decide what happens to your body in real time, right? So this the perfect example of this is rape, right? What happens to your body should be up to you. And rape is a violation because not only can we point to the objective facts of, you know, pain, suffering, trauma, post-trauma, and so on, which are all objectively quantifiable and verifiable, but we have the subjective element of do you want somebody to forcibly take your body over and do things to it that you don't want to have happen, right? There are certainly people that would say, I have a rape fantasy. So maybe they look for those types of interactions, or maybe they role play with somebody that they trust so that they know they're not going to get, let's say, herpes or something, right? Right. That would be, like you said, a role playing. I don't think consensual rape is even a thing. Those two concepts are contradictory. No, I agree. I agree. I'm just saying that there there are people that have rape fantasies where they have a fantasy where they're being taken over against their will. Now, the fact that they want it to happen negates the word rape. It's no longer a rape, but it is a rape fantasy. Okay, good. Right? Got it. We're, yeah. we're, 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 square, we're square on that. Yeah. yeah. But in lies another subjective element to it. But bodily autonomy does factor into why we consider things immoral, as does a person's right to life. We recognize these basic human rights Okay. Yeah. and we can prop them up with evidence and reason, I think relatively easily. And for instance, we can demonstrate and we can argue why the death penalty is an incorrect action. Something like that. Sure. So, or why it's an immoral thing. So I wanted to lay those out. That's what I have so far. And so if we, if we, you know, delve into, let's say, the human rights aspect of it, we build a better understanding of why certain things are immoral on their face, right? Why, why is it wrong to take somebody's body over without their wanting? But these are subjective elements of morality that prop up that idea that it's a subjective element. Cause the object objective side of morality would be that if you take over somebody's body and commit traumas, that's all measurable and verifiable in the objective world. Okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's why these elements are, are kind of put together. And that's why I meld them together into this foundation, because they sort of play off of each other for one. And then they also prop up the idea of what is or isn't an immoral action. And it's measured on that continuum. So there's some stuff borrowed from Sam Harris's uh, book. There's some stuff borrowed from, um, you know, I, I 
follow uh, T.J. Kirk. Uh, he's a subjective moral person. He thinks it's all subjective, as do many people, David Pakman and so on. And these are all people that put this out into the world and so as a philosophy. And so I try to engage with that as much as possible. And it occurs to me that it is amalgamation or a, an intermingling of the two based on those two basic ideas that we have a continuum, that it is possible to move across that continuum, and that we have basic human rights. So there are some things like, for instance, the basic human rights keep the continuum in check. It's kind of like a check and balance. You could say, for instance, that by killing half of the world's population, you could increase the remaining half's happiness by like 15-fold or whatever, right? So you could try to rationalize your way towards mass murder. Sure. I'd like to come back to an earlier example you made about the Starbucks. It reminded me of the old saying, uh, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. So let's say I'm like an eco-warrior and I'm like, Starbucks commits massive pollution. They spew all these greenhouse gases. They like burn down the jungle to grow their trees. I, I'm just I'm just saying this is what sure. an eco-terrorist might say. Sure. Um, and I could say if I blow up enough Starbucks, people are going to stop shopping at Starbucks. Starbucks is going to go out of business and then the planet's better off in right. the long run. So uh, yeah, of course, there's always a way to rationalize destructive behavior. Sure. So what keeps that rationality in check, though, is these ideas that each individual person has a right to bodily autonomy and a right to life. There must be or there ought to be a solution that we examine and try to implement that does not invalidate or in any way offend these basic human rights. Because even though it may be true that killing 50% of the world's population would hugely benefit the remaining 50, what kind of world would that be if the remaining 50 were constantly at unease and distraught over not only what happened, but what may happen again in the future? Human beings, we can show... Are live terrible lives when they're cons constantly worried about whether or not they're going to be murdered any second, right? That's why we've seen such flourishing with the advent of farming and keeping predators away and fences. And we we've, we've innovated our way out of the food chain because it was such a trauma to us, <laughs> right? And yeah. look at how much we've been able to do in the 12,000 or 13,000 years since that innovation of farming. By taking ourselves out of the food chain, and not having to worry if we're going to be, you know, trampled by elephants or attacked by a panther or whatever, right? Or even attacked by each other. I'm mm -hmm. sure each other was a much more was much more in our minds than tigers and wolves and shit like that. Well, sure, yeah. I mean, but being able to domesticate ourselves, yeah, was a huge was a huge innovation and a huge benefit. That's what I want to put to people as a way to measure, identify, and and determine determine what their actions are doing, what their actions, what actions they should be doing, what things they should avoid, right? I think I think what the main problem that people have with morality and moral discussions. So if you take the moral landscape by Sam Harris is is he doesn't give us anything to actually work on, right? He doesn't lay out a moral foundation to utilize in our daily lives. He just talks about peaks and valleys and that it's possible that different actions can get you to different peaks or different valleys. Right, that because there is a landscape. Each person as we're going along through life has to make those decisions constantly. So like let's say you're working with someone else and you make a mistake, you could confess and try to make it right, or you could try to conceal and hide the fact that you made that mistake. And one would be one would probably be moral and one would be immoral, more right. than likely. And so it's up to the individual to decide how to do that. 
And so, uh, I guess, it, it, well, I guess what I would ask you, Paul, is the, this discussion we're having and your your principle of objective versus subjective ways of, of evaluating morality. This sounds like like a, an evolution in your thinking on the concept of morality. Is that right? Oh yeah, definitely. Is it yeah. something? Is it something you spend a lot of time? Yeah, thinking about. Yeah, definitely. Okay, okay. I've been talking and thinking about morality for probably the last eight years okay. on a fairly regular basis with people that I know and any chance I get, um, and trying to understand sort of the basic elements because uh, saying that morality is subjective, full stop, was never satisfactory to me because that means any person can say this is moral or this is immoral sure. or any society can just claim that what they're doing is moral or immoral right and that's clearly wrong because we could take the most you know inflammatory example of you know Nazi Germany right. thought they were doing something that's perfectly funny. I was, morally correct I was just thinking about Poland yeah yeah when, and clearly they weren't right by right. any objective standard ever they were not doing a good <laughs> thing for society as a whole or humanity in general right yeah. now that being said the 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 idea that morality is objective full stop um, never really sat with me because, well, for one, I think there are good cases to be made for a subjective element to morality. I think if you're going to weigh morality, which is, which is more true? Is it more subjective or more objective? I think you, I think if you're honest with yourself, you fall on objective because what we learn from the objective world is which actions are actually immoral and which ones aren't. So let's take an example, right? Because this is easy. So up until very very recently in human history, burning fossil fuels was a moral good. Yeah, for sure. We didn't know and we didn't have the information to measure the chemistry of our atmosphere. But as soon as we did, and as soon as we did understand chemistry to the degree that we do today, which is objective to its core, chemistry has nothing to do with the subjective world, right? It is an objective scientific <laughs> endeavor, okay. one that was hard fought. Now that we understand what we're doing to the the environment and the chemistry that we're changing in our atmosphere, we understand that burning fossil fuels is going to end up being a moral wrong. It's still at the margin better for us, right? It keeps our electricity on. It gets us to work. It gets us to school. It provides it, us bountiful harvests exactly. with, our, with our modern farming techniques. It refrigerates our food. It does everything. It, it creates a lot of our clothes. Ambulances can drive around and save people's lives because they have gas in the tank. Exactly. Exactly. And it, it gives us a ton of moral benefit. And I, I get annoyed with people that are like, oh, fossil fuel companies are terrible. It's like, well, not exactly. They've become terrible when they deny what's happening to the environment. It, I think I think fossil fuel could, could just back their way out of this whole thing by saying, look, for years and years and years and decades and decades, we were doing a moral, bene a moral good for society. There's no question about that. But now we understand that there is a limit. There's an upper limit, just like the lashes we were talking about with that one person, right? You could get to lash number seven and they go, armadillo, tap out. We're at a point now with the environment, with our with the chemistry of our atmosphere that we should be tapping out. The immoral problem that we're faced with is that fossil fuel companies don't want to acknowledge it and they campaign against it, right? And they obfuscate and, yeah, they right. fought like the, uh, the cigarette 
company's exactly. playbook of buying scientists to produce the science that you want. Exactly. And, and so I, I think it's, a, the, it's the, an objective fact that we're changing the chemistry of our environment okay. and that we are now committing an immoral act by burning fossil fuels if we could be transferring it over to a cleaner energy source. Okay. Because we have an objective understanding of the facts. We would not even know that we were committing immoral acts if we didn't have an objective understanding of our world. Okay. So that's very interesting because just like you are going through evolution, you're thinking about it. We as a species, as new information comes to light through our scientific research, mm-hmm. uh, our our morality as a species, like what's objective, changes when new information comes to light. Exactly. And we are in we are increasing our morality in a positive way, informing our morality in a positive way more and more and more and more. <laughs> sure. Just the like the more science we understand and the more we understand about the objective world. It isn't subjective in the sense that you can just say it's okay. Or or a society can just say it's okay. We have to check the objective facts of the matter. Bronson. Hey, knock it out. Do you have to be so weird? Knucklehead. We have to check with the objective facts to determine if what we're doing is right or wrong. Okay, okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? Sure. It was just like when it was revealed just how badly and how widespread abuse of children was in the Catholic Church in recent years, that it sort of shocked and appalled most people in society, unlike your Greek example, where it was just considered like, I don't know, like an apprentice-master relationship or something, you know, mm-hmm. a wiser, older man. So, so yeah, I, I I get what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense. Good. I'm glad. I was worried that it wouldn't, uh, but I've given it a lot of thought. <laughs> well, let me ask you if... if Unless there's more points you want to make on that, because I Go was ahead. just I was just wondering, and as I mentioned a second ago, it's it's really private the decisions that go on in in an individual's head on how to how to be moral. Should I do this thing that's going to help myself in the short term and will hurt other people, or should I do something that will you know maybe not benefit me as much, but it won't hurt anyone else, or it might even benefit other people. You know, it's something that each person has to go through and and make an individ, individual decision upon constantly, like every day, minute by minute, you have to make these decisions. So kind of what, I guess that's something that most people do pretty much automatically. Sure. I'm not going to sit there and think, oh, moral code that I learned or whatever. Like, what do you think is the benefit of spending time the way you've done to consider the the options and all the different variables? Like, how does that benefit you or, or how might it benefit a different someone else? Sure. So I think uh, it, it benefits you in the way that you describe. So your general ordinary whatever person that's not thinking about morality is just going to make decisions and they're not necessarily going to be mindful of what they do or say, right? They might take into account their short-term gain at the expense of other people. I think the more you think about morality and the more that you try to incorporate moral systems into your life, the objective, the subjective, these uh, the ideas of basic human rights, um, and, and that there is a continuum, that there's a way for you to move in a positive direction as opposed to a negative direction. If you take these into your thought process, it becomes like muscle memory, right? You start to think this way just in general. So you change your behaviors, you change your your actions, you change your mind thought pro- or your thought process. So instead of being mindless, you become mindful. In 
instead of just doing things, right? And not really considering what it might do to other people or what you might be actually doing to yourself and not realizing it or the kind of damage you might cause or whatever. Instead of just thinking compulsively and doing impulsively, you are able to incorporate these ideas and it just starts to become part of the process. That's the key. I think that's the real trick. It's kind of like taking on a new, um, you know, a new uh, habit or something like that. These are exercises that you can do, ways that you can think so that now in your life, you start to think that way. You may pause and be like, well, huh, how is this going to affect <laughs> my wife or my child or my dog, you know, or whatever? Is is it moral for me? Here's a good example. Let's, let's use an example because it might help illustrate. I don't want to take up too much time, but let's say you're determining whether or not you should get a dog. If all you think about is the benefit you're going to receive from that dog, the loves and hugs and kisses and the cuteness and all that stuff, and you don't take into account that that dog is going to be home alone for 10 hours every day because you have a full-time job. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you like to go out on the weekends, right? Because you're single or whatever. For sure. Or you're with somebody that yeah. likes to go out. You guys have a bowling league or whatever. And I like, you, can't dig, yeah. you can't take a dog, right? What about the dog? Now here, we're, we're, we're really putting a lot of icing on the moral cake because we're actually taking into account another species, right? But what about the dog? What about the dog? The dog may look happy every time it sees you. Sure. He's been bored for 10 hours. But yeah, he's been bored out of his mind for 10 hours, but how much moral or how much struggle mentally, emotionally, physically is that dog going through? Having been somebody who works with dogs and ha I've been doing this for years and years, right? 10 years probably. I see a lot of behavior in dogs that other people own that I do not see in my dogs because I didn't own a dog when I couldn't take care of it. When I had a full-time job, I didn't get a dog. Being involved in these moral pro processes and questions and answers and considerations of other things other than yourself led me to not get a dog when I had a full-time job. Now, I have plenty of time to spend with my dogs. And I honestly, I'm with them pretty much all the time. I take them everywhere I go. They, you know, We go on walks and stuff like that. This is a fulfilling lifestyle for the dog and it's fulfilling for me also. But if you're only going to take into account yourself and not the dog, you're going to miss out on the whole side of morality that is the positive feedback loop. Now, you're not only getting something out of it, but the thing that you're with in this case, a dog is going to get something out of it too and have a positive experience. And that's going to feed into your positive experience and you're going to feed into it and so on. So I think that's really the key. That's really the benefit is you maximize the well-being of the things around you. And that in turn maximizes your well-being and so on. And, so, and it just feeds back and forth. Okay. And I think that's really the key. Okay. That sounds great. But if you're not taking into account these other things, the objective facts of the world, the subjective of, of the subject, in this case, the dog, the subjective experience, well, you miss out on all that. And it just is about you. Right. And, and like you said, you get to terrible philosophies like Ayn Rand and well, it's and, like you said, you know, political thinking about it over time and, and wrestling with it allows you to internalize it so that it becomes automatic. It's not something that you have to... You're going to be more likely to make moral decisions if you if you do consider it often and make it important to... You, you are conscious and deliberate about how you make decisions, moral decisions. Yeah. Okay, there was our discussion. Again, Jesse did a great job. Um, and I've, you know, I think I've uh, said some things about Jesse in the past where I was like, well, I don't know that he'll be on the show anymore, but, um, you know, 
some things happened since the, we were at this place. This was an earlier podcast that we did, and we were very amiable. So I'm very happy that we have this uh, on record. <laughs> There's another podcast that he and I did where you'll hear a slightly different tone, and you've probably already heard slightly different tones when Jesse and I are together. But uh, this was a really a, a nice moment between the two of us, and it, it helps me remember him fondly. Real quick, so in this discussion, we definitely talk about how the subjective element of morality has to be taken into account. And I think my discussions with Nathan Spears also talks about this uh, in some detail, that the subjective account of what's happening to a person, so whether they're suffering or whether they're elated or whatever it is, must be extracted from their psyche, must be extracted from their mind and recorded so that it can be utilized as objective data, so that we can build objective data sets and then use them to make predictions and to make generalizations and to help us in navigating the moral world that we're trying to build, the moral society. So we touch on that here again. I think in re-listening to this podcast, I, I remember thinking the first time I heard this podcast, because uh, I, I recorded it for the Secular Hubcast, which uh, I, n- I no longer contribute to. But um, the first time I listened to this podcast, I don't know that I liked this podcast very much. I don't know that I liked what I did. I don't know that I liked what Jesse did. But now re-listening to it, I think I did a pretty good job, and I think Jesse did a great job. So I'm very happy with this audio, and I hope that it finds you in good spirits and with an open mind to listen to what I say here and, and what Jesse says. I think there's a lot here for us as a as a people. Lastly, I talk about in in I talk about what I'm calling uh, human rights, and I say you know I think it, we can use evidence to support human rights. This is one of the evidences that I will get into in much more detail in season three when I talk about morality in in depth, where I take these ideas and I actually kind of put pen to paper and write a co- coherent book on on the subject for one, but then also really bring it all together with everything in 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 the book I'm writing called The Bible 5.0. So I just want to be clear about that, that when I'm talking about evidencing human rights, th- there's a couple different ways to think about human rights. One way would be sort of it's like folklore. It's like modern day myth. Um, in fact, I believe it's the book Homo Sapiens, or maybe it's just called Sapiens, uh, where the author, and I'm forgetting his name, but uh, I'll get it at another time, talks about that as modern myth myths. It's a myth we tell ourselves that we, for instance, have a right to life. But if we're going to take somebody's subjective experience of pain and suffering and flourishing, if we're going to take that into a data set and we're going to use that as if it's objective data, because clearly once it is, let's say let's say we were to ask a billion people what they thought about slavery or, you know, some of them were slaves and so on and what if they would be a slave or if that would be a painful or a suffering thing for them to go through or if it would cause great elation, if it would be a way for them to flourish, um, we could then build a data set from their answers, their subjective experience of, you know, some the ones that were slaves, for instance, would be able to tell us about what it was actually like firsthand. The ones that weren't slaves that don't want to be slaves would have would be a different kind of data that we could put into this data set. And then there may even be people, although this seems very unlikely, but there may even be people that would want to be slaves for some reason, okay? So they would be a part of the data set. But let's say we have have a billion points of data now regarding the pain and suffering people feel uh, in regards to slavery. Or you could say it another way, uh, the, you know, the flourishing or the, the well-being they feel when in regards to slavery, okay? 
And specifically, to be clear, not what they think about slavery apart from themselves, but as slaves. Would they want to be slaves, in other words? So that's now a data set with a billion data points in it. Well, any data set like that is now objectively uh, verifiable. We can put it into a database and we can query it and we can pull out objectively verifiable answers. So what percentage of those people say that it would cause great pain and suffering? What percentage of those people would say that it would cause them flourishing and so on? So I want to I want to plant that flag. That's really where this has gone over the last, you know, few years of me thinking about it. I, I've always had this idea that the subjective element of morality is something that we need to extract and use as objective data sets to query and to understand. It, should slavery be a thing that we do? Well, you know, let's say, I'm just going to pull numbers out of the air here, but let's just say 99% of people say no, that it would cause suffering. Well, then we can say with a 99% um, certainty that we shouldn't do it. Um, I hope I hope I've made my point. So uh, there was my first attempt at describing a, a moral foundation and a moral system that I'm going to be elaborating on further. And you've been listening to Ear Seduction.